Good morning, everybody. Let's see if that's working. If not, that's all right. Um, well, it is that time of year again. Uh, it's time to start putting away those Christmas ornaments, pack up the lights and the tree, and haul them up into the attic. And for many of us, uh, our trousers might feel a little more snug, our belts slightly under more pressure from the two weeks of feasting and rest. And I'm here to tell you, it's time to springboard out of the luxury of December into the sprint of January. It's time to get back on the treadmill. It's time to rework your budget. Time to plan for the future. Get a healthy new diet, maybe. Start waking up early to get a jump on the day. Learn new time management skills. Spend more time with the family. Trim the fat and get to work. Because after all, all hard work brings a profit. But mere talk only leads to poverty. Is 2017 your year? The year that you'll finally get around to reading the book that you want to read? The year you'll finally be able to take the vacation you've been saving up for? The year you'll finally meet your spouse? The year you'll have children? Maybe. Maybe this year. Now I understand that some of you have very specific New Year's resolutions and specific goals for what 2017 will be. But I also know that many of you here despise New Year's resolutions. I mean, nothing's really going to change, right? I mean, we're in Britain after all. It's just going to get more cold. It's still going to be just as dark. Glass half empty people. And I get you. I am a glass half empty person. I don't think I've ever had a New Year's resolution, nor do I know if I ever will. But whether you have big plans and specific, measurable, realistic, time-sensitive goals, or if you just can't be bothered, this is the only time of the year when we're all thinking about the same thing, living a good life. Even I admit, as one who doesn't make resolutions, that there's something clean about the clean slate of January, the newness, the freshness that's begging us, what is the next year going to hold for us? So whether you're an optimist or a realist, we all want to live the good life this year. And this is also definitely time of the year when people share their New Year's resolutions all over social media, their cheap, cheesy sentiments. You know what I mean. And I stumbled over one particular article a friend shared, claiming to have found the way he would live this new year. And the name of the article was The Ten Golden Rules on Living a Good Life. Fitting. It is published in the Forbes Business Magazine. So here are... The 10 golden rules on living a good life. Let's see if we can agree to what these keys are. Now, Andres, you might need to help me. So the first in this article says to live a good life. Number one, examine life. So engage life with vengeance. He writes, always search for new pleasures and new destinations that will, you can reach with your mind. Number two, worry only about the things that are in your control the things that can be influenced and changed by your actions. Number three, he writes, will treasure friendship because it fulfills the reciprocal attachment that needs to fill for affiliation. Number four, experience true pleasure. That is, avoid shallow and transient pleasures. Keep your life simple. Seek calming pleasures that contribute to a peaceful state of mind. Number five, he says, master yourself, resist any external force that might delimit your thought or action. 
Number six, avoid excess, live in harmony and balance. Enjoy with moderation. Number seven, be a responsible human being. Approach yourself with honesty and thoroughness. Eight, don't be a prosperous fool. It's not a cure-all against an ill-led life. And he says, number nine, don't do evil to others because, as he says, evil doing is a dangerous habit. Ten, kindness. Kindness towards others tends to be rewarded and that supports and reinforces the quest for the good life. So there you have it, the good life according to a man named Panus Muradukatas, who is a professor of economics at LIU New York and Columbia University, contributor to the New York Times, Newsday. He holds multiple PhDs, written the best-selling book, The Ten Golden Rules. Now, we can probably find some aspects of this vision of the good life that we really enjoy or that we need to be modified, or you might entirely disagree with this whole project, and that's, that's fine. Because, of course, everyone has their own unique taste, their own unique vision of what the good life should be. Everybody's playing by their own rules. You can disagree all you want, but the one thing no one disagrees about is that there is such a thing as the good life and that it's worth pursuing. See, the pursuit of the good life is the pillar upon our Western society rests far more than any religion or community or tradition. What binds us together is that we're all on this quest to live the life we want. The good life is out there, and it's out there for the taking. Unlike the cultures of old, where only the royal, the aristocratic, the wealthy had this luxury, our society has made it available to the masses. A small country was once formed on these principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The good life is the glue that holds Western society together. Call it whatever you like, the American dream, the British dream, a happy family, a successful career, secure and peaceful life, a meaningful life. This is what we live, so we eat, it's what we breathe. The good life is always lurking around the next corner the next promotion, the next degree, the next vacation. And we are consumed with getting it. Now, you might be thinking that I'm about to stand here and denounce the good life and the pursuit of happiness as worldly, as evil, as corrupt. I mean, now is when the time when the church leader stands up and tells you you need to throw away your successful career or desire for promotion, a vacation, your money, and suffer for the sake of Christ, right? Because that's what Jesus did. Well, today we will see that the book of Proverbs might not entirely agree with that sentiment. The past uh, month, as I was reading through this book with my wife, Emily, um, we found our understanding of what it means to be a godly person challenged. We got in a few heated discussions about whether our calling in this world is to suffer or to flourish. Proverbs isn't a book that we spend that much time in, and it's really unfamiliar territory it seems to have a much more nuanced understanding of what it means to live life well. And understand it doesn't get in either extreme suffering or extreme success. And somehow, Proverbs suggests that our pursuit of the good life here in this world is good. We all want the good life. We all want the good life because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he saw it, and it was good. 
And God saw there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it was, and it was good. God said, let dry land appear, and God saw it, and it was good. God said, let the earth produce vegetation, plants, trees, and it was good. And God said, there be lights in the sky to separate the seasons and day and night, and it was good. God said, again, let the waters swarm with fish and let birds fly in the air, and it was good. Then God said, let earth bring forth creatures, and it was good. And then finally, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the world. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And it was so. God saw everything he had made, and it was very good. So God creates, and it is good. And he hands over the earth to mankind. He says, keep going. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Let us create buildings, develop cities, make art, marry someone, build a family, create new technology, grow a garden. Continue the good life I have given you. And the good life is built into creation, and it's built into us. And so in the pursuit of the good life, we are merely seeking to become what we were created to be. So on the macro scale, in a pursuit of a meaning, a family, a career, a legacy, but also on the micro level, on everyday level, in a pursuit of healthy, life-giving relationships, in our daily time management, in our productivity, in our health, in our wellness, in our eating, and in our sleeping. Now take a look at our passage this morning. There are five specific commands that a father gives to his son, that he's presumably learned by living through God's good creation. And after each command, there is an incentive, an image, a picture of the good life that seems to echo Genesis 1. Take a look. In verse 2, it says, For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. In verse 4, Because you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. In verse 6, and you will have straight paths. Verse 8, and it will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Verse 10, and then the barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. And lastly, in verse 12, you will be delighted in as a child. Proverbs aims at the good life, a peaceful life which finds favor in both God's eyes and man's eyes. A life of straight paths where there's healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. A life where barns are full and there's enough wine to pass around. A life that is secure in the delight of a father. But even that doesn't quench our thirst, right? I mean, it's not enough to simply acknowledge the obvious that we're made for and desire a good life. We need an answer. What is the good life and how in the world do we live it? And so it's precisely this question, a question that has stumped philosophers since Plato, that the book of Proverbs is trying to answer. What is the good life and how do we live it? So we're starting a new series this morning on this strange, poetic, yet practical book of the Bible that seeks to coach us in the wisdom we need to walk through our long and complicated lives to the good life. Now, Proverbs is found in the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, and it fits into a category called the wisdom literature, along with 
Ecclesiastes, and Job. And the wisdom literature is distinct among, from the prophets and the law books of the Old Testament. And it's different because it's concerned about our daily living. Not that the law or the prophets aren't concerned about our daily living, but no other book speaks directly to our daily life like wisdom literature. Because while we need the grand story of the exodus and the deliverance of God's people from bondage and their journey towards redemption, we also need the prophets who speak for the oppressed and justice. We need more than that. See, we can, live, we can live day by day and fail to see the links between our daily relationships and personal aspirations with that grand story and that grand vision. And so wisdom literature is trying to kind of fill in that gap. Wisdom literature forces us to deal with how we spend the rest of today. Today. God does care that we understand sort of the massive truths of our existence, but he also cares about the nuances that make a difference in our relationships and experiences every day because at the end of the day, even if we seek the holiness of the law or inspired by the visions of the prophets, we can still make a mess of our lives, of our families, of our church, our workplaces, our communities, if we are unwise. So we need God's help moment by moment down at the level where there isn't explicit rules. Like what career should you take? Or what kind of person should you marry? How can you endure the suffering you can't escape? How should you actually spend your money? And so throughout this book, God is coaching us in the wisdom we need to live the good life. But the problem is wisdom isn't a part of our daily conversations. The idea or even notion of wisdom seems archaic, it seems old-fashioned, reserved for only times when you're making, you know, really big life decisions. I mean, we can't really be bothered. We would far prefer life tips that we can kind of find on social media, take a little bit here, take a little bit there, sprinkle it in, and then we're set. Now, as I reflect on my own life, I'll be the first to admit that most mornings I kind of wake up, start my day without much thought about the different people I will encounter or the situations I will find myself in. I just kind of kick into gear and try to make the best of my daily life. That's just how I work. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here who does that because in the constant stop and start, short attention span, with an endless stream of momentary visible Twitter feed fragments, we have been reduced to one splinter fact after another, and we're trying to patch together some kind of elegant whole worth living for. The famous poet, T.S. Eliot wrote about this age we find ourselves in. He wrote, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? You see, we have moved past our desire for the slow-coming, thought-provoking, life-challenging wisdom of Proverbs. We take very little time to think critically and wisely about our everyday activities, and that's concerning. That should make us feel uncomfortable, especially if we realize that. Proverbs assumes that there is such a thing as a good life, but it also assumes as a certain kind of life, and there's a certain way to live it. You see, unlike our culture that cares only that we're pursuing the good life and we're not stepping on anyone's toes, Proverbs suggests that the good life is a specific kind of life, a specific way to live it. And that makes us uncomfortable. You see, if Proverbs shows us, 
shows us how to be wise. It also shows us there's many, many ways to be foolish. As it says in Proverbs 13, 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn from the snares of death. <laughs> That's calming. Throughout the entire book of Proverbs, we will see two paths that we might find ourselves in, the way of the wise or the way of the fool. One is a fountain of life. The other is caught in a snare of death. We should care because it's possible to live a life that looks like the good life, yet under the surface it brings pain and death. It's very possible to deceive yourself. You have found the good life and true wisdom, yet find out you've missed it, become foolish in the process. Now, I've had this experience on slightly a different level. Um, I started to learn how to play the guitar at a relatively early age. Um, I was about 12. My, mother, my grandmother bought me a guitar and a year's worth of guitar lessons um, for my birthday. And I was far too excited, like many other people, of how I looked holding the guitar in the mirror than actually going to the guitar lessons, learning note-by-note melodies. I didn't want it. So after the first painful year of lessons, my mom offered to extend the lessons. I convinced her that I didn't need them. I, I was fine. And so as life went on, I began to get better at playing the guitar because of a thing called guitar tabs. Now, if you don't play guitar, just know that guitar tabs are like a poor man's version of sheet music. They're sort of simplified, down-to-earth tutorials to how to play specific songs. So with my very, very limited understanding of actual music theory, I devoted myself to these guitar tabs. I learned these really beautiful, complicated songs on the guitar, and I could impress friends, dazzle them. And to this day, I know my way around a guitar pretty well. Um, but if you ask me to play along with the song, I, I can't do it. <laughs> and it, when my friends would invite me over to jam, I was terrified because I would be exposed that I really don't know how to play the guitar that well. And to this day, I feel the same way. I never got around to more guitar lessons to actually learning the music theory. You know, how the notes fit together and how the combinations fit into a key, which notes harmonize with one another. This created a real problem for me. This was embarrassing. See, I was afraid that people would find out I didn't actually have a good grasp on how to play the guitar as well as people thought. I didn't know how to play along. Sure, I could play the guitar well in circum certain specific circumstances, but I didn't have any wisdom in playing the guitar. Well, similarly, the Bible speaks this way about the good life, that the good life is built into creation almost like a song. The goodness in creation is playing, and it's playing a song that we need to learn how to accompany. It's our job to learn the key and play along with it. The people of the Old Testament had a similar understanding of this good life that they called shalom where that means the original intended peace and harmony of God's good creation. There's this life-giving song that's playing. It's our job to gain the wisdom to play along with that song. But it's very easy to fake it. It's very easy to look like you're living wise, growing in health, wealth, and prosperity, and fail to play in the key with creation. It's very easy to learn a few bits, but fail to learn the wisdom necessary to play along. We can live our lives and accumulate wealth, large family, successful career, and find out 
We've been playing in the wrong key the whole time. Underneath the surface, we might not have the wisdom that is a fountain of life. So in your rhythms of your daily life, what key are you playing in? Consider the life you live and the life you want, because we all want the good life. But which one? And more importantly, how are you getting there? Which begs the question, well, how do we live the good life? Well, we all lead wise lives. In an article titled, What is the Good Life? in Huffington Post, Kim Kalicki tries to answer this question, what is the good life and how do I live it? And throughout the article, she gives these small indicators of maybe what it might look like. Maybe it's a life in which you feel loved or find success or a life that holds beauty. But at the end of the day, a good life is when your outlook, quote, is that you may have more good days than bad days. When your life is generally a blessing and not a burden. Which actually sounds like <laughs> pretty close to our definition of what the good life is. Even today, either before or after the service, I bet you had a conversation when someone asked, well, how's it going? And you quickly think back through your week, kind of add up the good days, subtract the bad, and, well, I'm good, or I'm bad. And so Clicky's ex- explanation of how one lives a good life, then, is even more elusive. She says, quote, my belief now is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. I think the good life has similar elements, but how we live it, well, that can be put into boxes, and we're so dissimilar. Now, whether this is true or false, it does highlight what wisdom is and what wisdom's trying to doing. Wisdom's composed of two parts, first knowledge and the second action. So wisdom is trying to first answer what kind of world we live in, and second, how do we live well in that world? So at the end of the day, what wisdom is, in a simple phrase, is putting knowledge to work. For Kaliki, the good life is just to have more good days than bad days. But she lacks any real concrete answer to how to live in that way and just kind of leaves it to us to figure out. A lot of people think there's no one-size-fits-all answer to live a good life, and we should just figure it out. And if you do, definitely don't force it on anyone else. What's wise for you might not be wise for me. Now, I remember my grandfather. He always loved playing Frank Sinatra albums during lots of family gatherings. It's as if that deep, velvety, smooth voice was the background to much of my childhood. And my parents and my entire family are huge Sinatra fans, and I learned many of those songs at an early age. And one of those songs stands out particularly. It's called My Way, which you might know. And Sinatra sings... And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets I've had few, but then again, too too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, I stood tall, much more than this, I did it my way. And so our society says that as long as you are true to yourself, figure out what the good life means to you and and don't stick out, that's all that really matters. 
Now, sure, there's some truth to that sentiment. Surely we shouldn't all have the exact same jobs or exact same family structures. But is there anything that we can hold on to for guides for the good life? Is there such a thing as true wisdom and true folly? Well, the book of Proverbs Proverbs knows that very few people are actually proud of being foolish, obviously. And Proverbs' question for us is not necessarily, are you wise or are you foolish? But in whose eyes are you wise? Because we can sit here all day and claim to be wise. But in whose eyes? You see, there are two kinds of wisdom. We have man's wisdom and God's wisdom. For example, let's take a look back at our passage this morning, which presents us with the good life. In verse 4, we see a life of favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Now, naturally, on our own wisdom would tell us that we need to do everything we can to earn respect, to find favor at any cost, you know, turn relationships into transactions. In verse 6, we see a life of straight paths. Now, naturally, our wisdom would tell us we need to figure out the safest route for our lives, pursue comfort at any cost, and turn our lives into predictable routines. In verse 8, we see life of health and refreshment for our bones. Now, naturally, our wisdom would tell us that we can harness this life and our health if we work hard enough at it. We can have a life of refreshment. In verse 10, we see barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine. Naturally, our wisdom tells us that we can have this wealth and prosperity if we hoard our wealth to ourselves. If we save our money well, we will be satisfied. In verse 12, we see a life that is delighted in by God. Naturally, our wisdom tells that if God is on our side, there won't be any pain or suffering, that our lives will be great. But let's actually take a look at that passage. Let's take a look at what godly wisdom is. Verses 3 and 4 say that we only have a life of favoring success in the sight of God and man because, God's wis- because with God's wisdom, we bind his love and faithfulness around our neck and write it on the tablet of our hearts. Verses 5 and 6 say we only have straight paths because with God's wisdom, we trust in the Lord and lean on him, knowing he will make our crooked roads straight. In verse 7 and 8 say that we only have a life of health and refreshment because we are able to turn away from evil and see the Lord for who he really is. 9 and 10 say that our barns are full and our vats overflow, not because we have hoarded our wealth, but because we honor and give up our first fruits to the Lord. Verse 11 and 12 say that we know that the Lord delights in us as children, therefore we will be able to bear the weight of hardship knowing that he is teaching us. You see, both of these wisdoms claim to be wise. One says seek, the other says rest. One says figure it out, the other trust. One says conquer, the other says stay humble. One says hoard, the other says give. One says despise, the other one says learn. As you think about your daily life, do you find yourself using your own wisdom or godly wisdom? Do you think that you can change your life this year through your own wisdom and self-sufficiency? Proverbs shows us that we can think we're wise and actually be foolish. 
See, unlike the articles you read online, unlike Sinatra's way, it matters which way you live. There really is a way to live the good life. We can all lead wise lives, but what kind of wisdom? We can attain the good life through our, we cannot attain, I'm sorry, the good life through our own wisdom and our own raw decision making. You see what we need is godly wisdom. We will see that the good life, here it is, the good life is the godly life. Now looking back at our passage this morning, we see wisdom. And this wisdom is the awareness of who God is put to work. Verse 3, we see that it means to love the Lord. Verse 5, it means to trust the Lord. Verse 7, to fear the Lord. Verse 9, to honor the Lord. Verse 11, to learn from the Lord. See, in this passage, the Father commands the Son to have a life centered around the Lord. It means your relationships, your plans, your morals, your wealth, your suffering. This is the picture of the godly life that Proverbs is giving us. These defining features show us what makes God's good life different. The pattern we follow to experience God's good life is characterized by loving, trusting, fearing, honoring, and learning from the Lord. In fact, we could kind of summarize all of these actions as one action, fearing the Lord. Perhaps no other portion of Proverbs speaks so loudly as the beginning in chapter 1. When Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is the way you know you're aimed at the good life, living with the right wisdom, that you're playing in tune with shalom, is that you fear the Lord. See, what your ABCs are to reading Shakespeare... What playing the scales are to performing Bach. What 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to doing calculus. The fear of the Lord is to wisdom. It is the beginning and the foundation. So this is the fundamental reordering of everything. Your thinking, your desires, your choices, and your whole life around God. Fearing him is realizing that we live in his good world as his created beings and beloved children. That means we don't get to decide what's wise. We don't get to trample on others to do it our way. In fact, all throughout the book, Proverbs assumes that we take the posture of a child learning from a parent. That's humbling. It's even painful for our egos and our confidence that what we know what's best Proverbs tells us that when we fear the Lord in this way, we'll experience the good life. The fear of the Lord is the key. But this passage doesn't just correct our understanding of the world. This passage also calls us to put this knowledge to work, to be wise. See, it's not enough to simply know that God is loving or trustworthy, or that we should fear him, or that he deserves a lot, or that he's in control. That's not necessarily wisdom. Wisdom requires that we take this renewed understanding and knowledge and put it to work. See, if you notice in verse 3, we are told to bind faithfulness and love around our neck and to write it on a tablet of our hearts. We are to wear God's love in our daily lives. If you look at verse 5, we are not told to know that God is trustworthy. We are told to lean on him, to submit to him. 
In verse 7, it's not enough to simply know that the Lord ought to be feared. We also ought to shun what is evil, everything that is contrary to him. In verse 9, we're not only to acknowledge God's honor or give him praise from our lips, we are to give up and honor him with our first fruits, the very best that we have. Now, this might seem like a simple task, just a minor tweak to how we normally function, putting the fear of the Lord to work. But many of you will know that this is a painful experience. The good life doesn't come without cost. It's very painful to learn the fear of the Lord. It means death to our narcissistic egos, our self-assured opinions, and our superior, superior neutrality. To make room for godly wisdom means that some of our wisdom must die. We do not change for the better by turning inward. We change as we turn outward and upward to the Lord with an awakened sense of his sheer reality. And for many of us, that means that we need to learn how to play in a new key. In our daily lives, we've been playing out of tune for a while. Perhaps a bit like me on the guitar, hoping not to be exposed. Even those who can play... Even those of us who can play fairly well, who read our Bibles, who participate in church regularly, we still need to truly learn the theory behind the music so we can harmonize and play in key in every area of our life, in our parenting, in our studying, in our eating, in our spending. It's very easy to know a lot about God and fail to put it to work into your life. The good life is a godly life but are you putting it to work? Now, perhaps this is all sound quite vague, general, detached from specific scenarios. Fair point. Maybe you haven't had a groundbreaking moment in the past 20, 30 minutes, and that's okay, because the book of Proverbs isn't saying anything particularly new. It's full of these kind of practical maxims that sound pretty familiar, but what Proverbs is doing is It's seriously calling us to and holding us accountable to to work out what we already know. So as we break into Proverbs this month, I want to start by giving us kind of a couple of few first steps. How can we start to evaluate our decisions, our daily life, and our even vision of the good life? You are facing so many choices that I don't know about, so many situations where we all need wisdom every day. That's why I can't offer a one-size-fits-all proverb. But together, we can be retrained in God's wisdom in this book. And here are a few questions to consider as we close. First, do you move through life just reacting? Consider how your choices harmonize with God's good created order. A wise person brings life into God's good creation. Do you act like your decisions be held accountable to God as your father and your home and community and relationships? As your time commitments, your purchases, your food and drink, your goals for this year? Finally, where in your life are you ignoring your need for wisdom? Do you reserve wisdom for only serious life decisions and move through every day in your own strength? If we take these questions in the pursuit of godly wisdom seriously, we will experience God's good life. The more you fear the Lord, the less you will fear of men. 
The more you depend on the Lord, the more, the more independent you will be. The more you obey him, the freer you will be. Life will begin to work for your healing and refreshment. So the good news this morning is, the Proverbs truly offers us what the rest of the world is looking for, an invitation to the good life. So, if you're feeling particularly lonely today, if you're feeling rejected, if you're experiencing a difficult relationship, bind God's love and faithfulness around your neck. If you're anxious about what tomorrow has in store, if you're worried about things that they aren't going according to plan, lean on him. If you've begun to feel proud or self-sufficient, humble yourself. Remember whose world you live in. Whether you have plenty or nothing, honor the Lord with the best that you have, and he will multiply it. If you're experiencing difficulty or hardship in your daily life, know that your Father wants you to grow. The fear of the Lord will change us. And so the good life is not a fairy tale. <clears throat> the good life is not a fiction. It is possible, and it can begin today. So I'm going to pray, and afterwards, we're going to spend a few moments in quiet reflection before we sing together. So take this time to consider the questions and ask the Holy Spirit to give you maybe a true desire for God's wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children, humbled by who you are, thankful that you give us the relationships that you give us, the resources that you give us. We really do want to honor you with all that we have. We want to live in tune with your creation. Father, help us this morning. Send your spirit to guide us in wisdom. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things we like to do from time to time here at Christ Church is give you a chance after hearing the sermon to grill the preacher with uh, ask uh, any questions that you've got or anything that wasn't clear or if you maybe think you need some help in applying what we've heard. So, Peter, why don't you come up and join me? And uh, just wave a hand in the air if you would like to ask Peter something or say something or tell him he's wrong. Um, make a comment about the weather, anything like that. Yes, Hikari. Yeah. Yeah, could you? That's very helpful insight. And I wonder if you Absolutely. want to add something to it about fear of the Lord sounds like a negative thing. Absolutely. So when we think of fear, it's quite a negative thing, like as you're saying. Really, I think you did kind of hit it right on the nail that really fearing the Lord is kind of seeing him in his sheer reality, which means that there's a sense in which there's an awe, there's a sense in which it's, there's almost a sort of a dangerousness, but and yet, as we looked at this passage, we were taught to love him, to honor him, to trust him. Um, as I think about just a practical way of kind of thinking about the fear of the Lord, there's the books of Narnia, um, which you may have all, some of you may have read. There's this one where I think it's the beaver asks someone about Aslan, which is the Christ figure, God figure in the um, books. And someone replies, well, he's the king. He's, he's un... What is, do you know the um, reference? Um, he's about, good, but he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. And this idea of Aslan is like, we don't say that God is like cuddly and soft, and yet he is sheer, his sheer reality is so much greater than us, and yet we can come and approach him. And so... Getting that sort of tension right really is at the heart of fearing the Lord. So that was really helpful, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The way I think about it, I don't know whether you've ever stood on the train platform when a high-speed train is going past, 
And if you're on the platform, you're very safe from the train. The train is not going to hurt you if you're on the platform. And yet that noise and the speed and sort of it, you feel like you stand back, you treat it with proper respect because it's so sort of impressive. And it's that type of picture I think we get with God in the Bible. And until we see him that way, nothing else makes sense. We can't do any of the things he asks us to do. That's really helpful. Thank you. Harriet, yeah. Great question. I think everyone heard it. So you... Yeah, yeah. So Proverbs does seem a lot of times, as I was reading it, a lot of people claim that Proverbs is kind of teaching us like prosperity, do this and you'll receive this. Um, and that seems, I guess, for most of our ears, a bit off, um, that no, that's not how really life works. Um, but I think one of the ways helpful to see it is it's not really like um, do this and then you'll receive this. So Proverbs aren't necessarily a promise that you will receive something. Um, but they're more an invitation to live life according toward this grand order, this grand pattern, the song that's built into it. Um, and so it's not necessarily a promise because there are a lot of times when you do the things in Proverbs, you honor the Lord, you love the Lord, and things don't go according to plan. And the wisdom literature in the Bible is composed of three books. So it's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And really, you need kind of all three singing in harmony and symphony to actually understand really how do we navigate this life. But there are, Proverbs speaks in generalities, and it's more trying to ask you the question, well, how are you living in this way? Are you actually thinking about how you're fitting into the pattern of creation? So it's not quite as uh, like black and white, but that is a hard thing to deal with, I think. Totally hypothetically. In this <laughs> totally hypothetically. Yeah, I think it definitely has. So I was talking about, I didn't get into how really the fallenness and corruptedness of the world kind of affects the kind of the good order. And there are times in which you live according to the good order and things don't go according to plan. And so there are times which, like I was kind of mentioning, there's things don't go according to plan like Proverbs seems like it would suggest. And really I think kind of a mature wisdom is understanding that there are mysteries and there are ways in which I think it, the world doesn't seem like it should work this way. And part of wisdom is learning to live with that mystery incorporated into our lives. Um, and then lastly, part of Proverbs is showing us the good life, which we only now know in part. So even the good life we experience here on this earth, we don't even fully know until we get to the, the second, the new creation. So um, I don't know if that has helped at all, but um, I don't know if you have words. Well, I think the other thing is the New Testament gives us a perspective where it says even the bad things are working for our good. So this sort of is true in the, in the truest sense. So even when you live the right way and you don't feel like you're being honored with people, the Lord is still actually doing something good. So you are receiving the good that you should have got by doing it. It's just not on the face of it. Um, that's a whole other discussion that I'm sure we'll get into in the series. Great question. So one of uh, Pete's greatest fears, thank you for sharing, um, is communicating worldly wisdom. So communicating um, wrongly. How do we make sure we're communicating godly wisdom in the way that we live? Very good question. Um, So one of the things I think when I come to a situation that I'm trying to consider, is this godly or not? Um, The book of Proverbs, I think most of us tend to think of it, I go to Proverbs, I get a piece of wisdom, and I can kind of hand it off. What Proverbs book of the book is trying to do is to create almost a, a school or an environment where you're constantly trained in how to think godly so 
I guess there's not a sort of a one kind of answer to say, and this is how you know you'll have godly wisdom. It's just this sort of life cultivating. I'm constantly being renewed in the fear of the Lord that I can begin to start thinking in a new way that's different from the world. And so in the moment, I would say, I guess, the way in which you make sure that it's not worldly wisdom is to ask simple questions that maybe our pastor this morning raised. Is this, how is this showing God's love? How am I binding love and faithfulness around my neck? How am I encouraging others to do that? Or um, am I honoring the Lord with all the things that I have? And so it's that constant questioning, and that's really what Proverbs is getting at, about how we live our daily life. Um, so maybe somewhere to start. I agree with that. And I think, I think one of the things we'll see as we go on through Proverbs is that we tend to think wisdom is for the really complicated decisions. And there are very complicated decisions in life. We're working out the wisest thing to do is quite tricky. But what Proverbs says is more often than not is that the wisest thing, the thing that fears God the most, in most situations is pretty clear. It's just we don't really want to do it. But actually look at any complex situation in your life and start with the building block of what most reflects the stuff in Proverbs 3, trusting the Lord, loving the things he loves. The rest does begin to come pretty clear quite quickly in most situations. So I think that's partly what Proverbs wants to say to you, Pete, is don't fear too much if you're starting with the right building blocks by getting things wrong further down the line. That's great, great question. Any other ones? Yeah, Chris. Yeah, great, great question. So uh, I guess, Chris, lots of us feel like we haven't really conquered this wisdom thing. How can you encourage other people if you don't feel like you're there yet? <laughs> well, maybe, like, I think with what we're saying that it's many times it's not really hard to get to. I think we think of wisdom as kind of an old man who lives up on the hill and there's this long pathway to get to it. Um, and so um, how can we encourage others, I think, is... Um, actually, in regards to what Pete was saying in book review, asking really, really good questions, because if it is there and we have the building blocks, it's really, when, we, when we're not wise, it's just kind of skimming over the surface and just kind of, this is how we do things. But if you begin to ask questions and ask someone, well, how, is this, how are you learning from the Lord in this situation? That immediately brings them out of a different way of thinking. In fact, that is, I think, the way in which we help each other is by really probing each other in our situations we find ourselves in. Yeah. And Jesus says, doesn't he, there's only two commandments really that matter, loving God and loving your neighbor. Ask, let's ask each other that question when you say, I've got this very tricky thing I'm dealing with or I'm not deciding what to do. What's the best way to love God? What's the best way to love your neighbor? If we start there, you'll be helping people talk, even if you don't know the right answer. So yeah, totally agree. Good questions. Very helpful. Yeah, Kat. Yeah, great question. So the book is quite vague. Mm. Uh, the Bible generally, the category of wisdom is vague because it's up to us. Mm. So how do we end up not, as Kat says, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, oh, it's all too hard to work out. I'll just do what is instinctive. Mm. That is a hard question. Um, <laughs> how do we just not throw the whole the bathwater? Um, trying to think about, um, do you have something to say? Cause oh, I could start with something. Yeah, maybe that'd be good. Been, yeah. I was, it was my, one of my questions too, and I've been thinking about it during the talk. I wonder if we can begin to accept the sort of worldview that Proverbs gives us and then that helps us not be vague. So we tend to think, I think, there's the spiritual bit of my life and then I get on with the rest. And one might feed the other, but basically I just get on with the rest of life. And Proverbs, as Peter's really helpfully explained, doesn't give us that view. It says the whole world is God's. The whole of your life is there 
to be gods. Start from that premise. And then it, for every single person in the room, that will look different. So I can't tell anybody publicly specifically what that will look like. But what Proverbs is trying to do is say, get into the worldview where you really think that. And I wonder if that's the best place to begin. That's why he talks about, like, if you're lazy, go and look at ants. It's like, well, what have ants got to do with how I'm living my life? But his view is, well, the whole world is God, so there's something to learn from ants and dogs and trees and, you know, go and think about that. Um, I wonder if that's a place to start. Yeah. I, say, I would say that in fear of, like, having the worldview kind of encapsulate things, it gets too vague. One of the things, the ways that I found that you can kind of begin to attack this is just think about very specific things in your own, own daily life and begin to question, well, what is driving it? What is moving it? This past week, um, as a staff team at Christchurch, we were just talking about simple, simple thing, time management, and we had to categorize them in time blocks and our productivity. So just asking yourself, why am I trying to be more productive can actually expose, oh, I'm trying to be more productive and it's actually becoming an idol, or I'm trying to be more productive because it's framing it and it's honoring the Lord. And so begin asking very specific questions about specific daily routines, I think might be a place to start in trying to work it through. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. One of the things I find it helpful to do with my life is to look and say, what does what I'm doing say about what matters to me? So I think that's the practical approach Proverbs encourages us to take. We tend to be quite introspective in our culture and say, oh, look at my heart, what really matters to me, what makes me cry, blah, 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 blah. Forget that a minute, Proverbs says. It says, look at what you're doing. That's what matters to you. So go and think on that. And that's, I think, how you get very practical. Begin with what you're doing and work backwards rather than the way we often want to do it, which is begin with how I feel and work towards what I should do. So there's some tips there. Peter, thank you very much.